Welcome, folks, to the Life Coach Pod Show. Today, we have a great guest, a veterinarian, who's going to talk to us about how to take care of our animals in quarantine, which seems like maybe they're taking care of us, but we'll get into that. I want to start, as usual, reminding everybody that it's a Tuesday. It is March 31st. For those of you just given up on trying to keep track of time whatsoever, we'll let you know when it's time to go back outside. In the meantime, there are a few things for the time capsule that I wanted to talk about today, a few current events. The first one has to do with Trump weakening the fuel economy standards. Today in the LA Times, there's a big story about the administration rolling back standards, and these were put in place to help us with climate change. They have weakened the, the, our aggressive efforts to combat climate change by releasing new fuel efficiency standards for cars and trucks. So. This is not good. The new rule for the, uh, yeah, I'm a liberal. Everybody knows that, big deal. I care about the planet, I care about you guys, I care about health, that's what matters most here. This new rule from the EPA uh, will most immediately be plunged into litigation, which means the states are gonna sue the federal government because the state governments can sue the federal government to try to stop it, especially in states like mine, the land of fruits and nuts here in California, because we even have stronger regulation in California than we do at a federal level. You need to watch this story. Uh, if the administration survives these legal fights, it would spare automakers from having to meet these ambitious gas mileage and emissions requirements that frankly don't seem particularly unreasonable to those of us who wanna breathe air. We have, uh, there's one comment in the story from uh, the National Resources Defense Council president, gutting the clean air standards makes no sense. It'll harm the air we breathe and it'll stall progress in fighting climate, the climate crisis and the increased cost of driving. Here's the deal though, this is really important to us because this is gonna worsen our air quality and I have no idea how many of us are going to get the virus, but one of the side effects or lasting effects as we want, may wanna think about it is potential lung damage and the last thing we need is more crap in our air. If you look at pictures, uh, satellite pictures right now over China, as people have been asked to stay indoors, the air is cleaner. The airplanes are out of the sky right now over the US for the most part. Our air is cleaner. This is a good thing. We don't want worse air when we are facing potential lung damage if we happen to get the virus. So that's a story to watch. The next headline is from NPR. They have an investigative arm and they're releasing a story, part one today of a multi-part series on the, what they're calling the plastic wars. So I know the other day when I was talking about making smart choices about how you spend money, that was in Monday's uh, show. You can listen to that on the podcast, the Life Coach podcast. One of the things you need to be careful of is how much plastic you buy. That's just been a smart thing to do because if you care about oceans and you care about our planet, plastic doesn't go away. But here's what they're breaking in this new NPR study, uh, investigation actually. The industry, meaning the um, uh, fuel industry has spent, the, the big oil industry, that's who makes our plastics, have spent millions in selling the notion of recycling because they wanted to sell more plastic. It's actually one of the ways they make money, especially if we're driving less, they make money by creating plastic. So for decades, Americans have been sorting their trash, believing that the most plastic could be recycled, but the truth is, the vast majority of plastic produced can't be or won't be recycled. In 40 years, less than 10% of plastic has ever been recycled. You're gonna to need to just sit with that a minute and take that in. 
in the last 40 years, only 10%, actually less than 10% of the plastic we think as good citizens we've recycled has actually been recycled. This NPR investigation goes into details and it goes all the way back to the late 1980s when the plastics industry started spending tens of millions of dollars promoting recycling. And here you thought it was just people who had a good heart. No, it was the very industry giving us plastic that was asking us to go ahead and buy more. Based on their own records, they knew it was unlikely to ever be economically viable. Recycling would be, never be economically viable. Okay, this one just, I just need to take a minute. This is why I say be really careful when you buy plastic. Really think about what you can make yourself or what you can buy in a different way and assemble at home, just add water. All these plastic bottles, all of these plastic wrappers, individually wrapped plastic forks, which drive me nuts. All of that, this is bad for us. It's bad for our future. It's bad for our kids. It's bad for all of us. And I'm sure Tom's going to tell you it's bad for animals too. So the, here's the real kicker though, the part that's going to make you sick once they figured this out, that they, were, they might be in some sort of problem. Plastic is more prevalent than ever, and it's become harder to recycle. Because as gas prices remain at historic lows, making new plastic is cheaper than recycled plastic. And the industry now produces many more different kinds of plastic that are more complex, more costly, and can't be recycled at all. They've got profits in mind. And I know, again, this won't surprise you, but this has all been about profits. So efforts to reduce plastic consumption are mounting but the plan to slow the growth of plastic will face an industry with billions of dollars of future profits at stake. There you go. So I want you to wake up, be alone. You should know I have my, it is a plastic cup, my Starbucks cup. This thing, a sucker I use every day. It has a lid because I have pets and they knock drinks over, but I keep to one. That's it. That's my cup. That's the cup I live by. And that thing, I hope nobody recycles it because I love that cup. It's my blue cup. All right, here's the last story, and it's just, I'm gonna offer this up. I know people have different opinions about guns, but I think this is important to just be aware of because it could end up impacting you. The NRA has lobbied the Department of Homeland Security to make guns an essential business that needs to remain open during our quarantine. The Trump administration has agreed and is allowing gun dealers and manufacturers to be considered essential businesses that will stay open, regardless of your position on guns. Honestly, you have to admit this is a stretch. Guns don't find a pandemic. And if things do go sideways, if we have severe poverty, if we have severely hungry people, if we have a situation where folks are feeling incredibly threatened, and all you need to do is go back to look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs and realize if you aren't meeting people's basic needs, they freak the F out then you need to know that more guns is not really gonna be a thing that's gonna work for any of us. More guns is gonna put us really at risk. So, all right, there we go. That's the liberal bias on the news, but those are the stories you need to keep track of. And I will now <laughs> cut, well, care about our future people, civil rights, human rights, that's me. So I'm gonna introduce uh, Tom Mason, Dr. Tom Mason, we go way back into a town just down the road from me. I'm in Sacramento. We both were at UC Davis where all the good vets are made. And Tom was on my dorm floor so many, many, many years ago. And he's turned out to have quite the remarkable and frankly, I'm very proud of him career. 
if you have lived in San Francisco, you may have had him be your vet if you were at Pets Unlimited, right, Tom? Correct. In the Fillmore or at the Santa, uh, San Francisco SPCA? Yep. Two places I know you must have fans who miss you as you're no longer working in the office proper any longer. Tell us about yourself for a few minutes. Sure. Well, I, um, thanks for inviting me onto your show. I haven't actually seen you in person in years. It's I know. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, we, we were on the same dorm floor. Oh my God, with the stories we have from that time. Um, so I'm a small animal veterinarian. I, I graduated from UC Davis in 1988. A uh, long time ago, 30 years ago. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, I've been, a, um, I've been pr primarily practicing in San Francisco for most of my career. Again, as Jennifer said, I was at, the, at Pets Unlimited, which was an animal welfare organization in San Francisco, where we had a large 24-hour veterinary practice uh, 20, with um, emergency and general practice care there. And then we also had an animal shelter and uh, did adoptions. Um, then I became part of the San Francisco SPCA when we merged with them. Um, and uh, currently, I'm the director of veterinary care of Kiro Pet Care, which is a, a small San Francisco-based company that is um, buying veterinary practices and operating them, running them. Um, we kind of have a unique model in that, unlike like VCA, if you have veterinary, if you have, a, if you have animals and you, uh, you go to veterinary practices, you've probably seen a VCA practice. That's a 100% corporate practice. You know, it's owned by, now it's owned by Mars. Um, the, the candy company? Candy company, yeah. They own, they own a huge amount of the veterinary, veterinary industry right now. They own Banfield. They own BCA. Oh, wow. They own Blue Pearl, which is specialty emergency. Uh, they own Royal Canin. Uh, they, they have their hands in a whole bunch of different uh, facets of the veterinary industry. Anyway, long story short, corporate, corporate, practice um we when we buy practices we partner with a veterinarian in the practice to be our on the side on the ground owner partner so we're trying to maintain local ownership in a practice so that um we've got a local leader who really un understands their practice their community um you know what that community needs when it comes to veterinary care um instead of just trying to rubber stamp a corporate model onto everything um so it's kind of it's honoring the independence in a way but gives them access to much more Correct. To a, there's, there's a huge amount of benefit to having a network of practices with, you know, combined, you know, purchasing, for example, or oh, yeah. know, things like that, that you can't really do as an independent practice, but you um, give up a lot of things when, when it's all, you know, again, corporate run. I really believe that, you know, the best practices are have a, have a leader in the practice that has a vision for what they want their practice to be. Um, and it's nearly impossible for a corporate entity to, to supply that in a way that's meaningful. Um, it really takes that individual to bring the heart to the practice um, that you lose when you end up in a corporate, 100% corporate um, owned situation. There's, there's corporate practices that have, you know, leaders in the practice that treat it like their own, but I would say a lot of them are caretakers and not, there's a, there's a lack of vision in the industry right now, given how the corporate consolidation model has really taken over the industry. There's very, there's fewer and fewer independent practices nowadays that are owned by a veterinarian or veterinarians. Um, that whole generation of veterinarians that, you know, preceded me and are part of my generation are selling because they're getting close to retirement. And young, young baby docs just don't have the money or the wherewithal to be able to buy practices any longer. So the only place that 
owners have to go to sell when they are going to retire is to a large group or corporate entity, mostly. You just might have explained that as a lifelong pet owner, yeah. what I experienced just in Santa Cruz County, where I used to have really committed vets and I knew it was their practice and I could tell they were willing to make the tough decisions and they didn't follow, they followed, I guess what I would say, their own protocol, right? And so, yeah. and then that shift to much more, yeah, much more Kaiser kind of method of treating where you fit into a model. They don't, it wasn't that personal passion is not the same. Correct. Correct. Wow. And, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, veterinarians are as a whole are very committed um, to providing, you know, good care. But, um, you know, when everyone's an employee. Right. Kind of engenders a certain approach to your job. Then if somebody has a piece of, you know, a piece of the pie as a, as a partner owner or whatever, I mean, you're going to treat that practice differently. And, and it, and what you're, it doesn't mean that employees don't bring their heart to their, to their practice, but if you don't have the vision to, you know, like, this is the practice I want to create. This is the practice. I, this is the kind of service I want to, I want to provide to our clients. If you don't have somebody kind of like developing that and, and wanting to build an intentional culture, for example, in the practice and, you know, that's going to benefit the employees and the, and the, um, and the clients and the patients. Um, you know, without that, I, I, to me, I really strongly believe without that sort of vision, visionary person in the practice, the practice just kind of drifts along. I mean, they may, may provide okay service and good medical care, but you miss something. Yeah, I, 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 I absolutely understand that intangible that you're talking about. For me, it's like what, me being an entrepreneur, I care so much about what I'm doing, but yeah. once I join the rank and file, I say working for the man, as they say, it's not the same. I realize they, I'm expendable, but when it's my venture, I'm super committed to it and I'm super fired up about it. Yeah. So yeah. I absolutely get that difference. And so CuroPet is really looking out for and trying to provide space for these entrepreneurial veterinarians. Absolutely. And trying to, I mean, you know, and trying to get people, most of our partners never dreamed that they would ever be able to be a partner in a practice or would be able to buy into a practice because they just didn't think that they would have the financial ability, frankly, in most cases, because veterinary students coming out of school nowadays have huge debt. Debt, uh, yes. And, uh, uh, you know, and it can take them 20 years to pay it off. And, and the idea of somehow coming up with a million, two million, three million dollars to buy a practice just is, you know, is beyond what most people can even imagine. So we, we actually fund the buy-in of our partners, so they they don't necessarily have to come up with their own resources if they don't have it. Um, and um, you know, we're really committed to trying to build a new generation of practice owners amongst our my colleagues, my younger colleagues. Wow, I did not know that that was what you're doing now. But I am now. I'm super fired up, and I'm glad you shared this with us because I think anybody who listens to this and cares about their animals will have this now in the back of their mind as they make choices about who they see. To your point. You're not saying people that are working for the large companies are bad vets. That's not no. the point. The point is about the culture, the passion, and the idea of really allowing people to have their own businesses still. Yeah. To, to still do business the way they want to do business, which I think right. is, is the thing that gives us the motivation in the morning to keep going. Yeah. And, but, and then also to have the advantage of a larger network, which, which inherently builds advantages. Um, you know, getting the best of both worlds, essentially. That's fantastic. Well, okay, so we'll switch to the woof, woof, 
meow part of our com of our conversation. Um, Tom knows I'm a lifelong cat owner. He helped me uh, hide a cat from a, land a property manager once, so he knows uh, good old Sophie, <laughs> the cat that wouldn't hide. <laughs> she was a great cat, though. Um, so I'm really curious. First, I'm going to ask you the hardest question, I think, right off the top, because we're starting to use chemicals like crazy. We're just in the house. Hopefully, our dogs and stuff are able to go outside, but we've got chemicals we're throwing yucky Clorox wipes and trash cans down at their level. We're cleaning floors with chemicals. What do, what do we have to worry about when it comes to our pets with this clean, with our germ phobia going on? Yeah, I mean, you know, certainly, uh, you know, cleaning products in general are something that, uh, uh, you know, you never want to eat, swallow, lick uh in general and so you do have to be mindful about that i mean dogs you know get in the trash if you're putting a whole bunch of caustic clorox wipes into the trash and they get in and tear them up you know i mean yeah they could they could make them sick burn their mouths or you yeah know. Burn, i was wondering about burning their mouths yeah yeah um you know when it comes to i mean same with floor cleaners if if you know if you're using something that's you know that's kind of toxic potentially on your floors well one why would you want to be walking on that barefooted yourself um, but you know, two, if the animal is something spills and they lick it up, I mean, they're going to getting exposed to that. I mean, generally things are going to be diluted out enough that you're probably not going to get a toxic dose from, you know, licking some floor cleaner up that's been, you know, mopped around. Um, but I mean, you know, certainly I, I, you know, I have a French bulldog, um, and I'm very mindful about how I, you know, what we use our, what we, you know, clean our floors with so that we're not leaving something that could damage her, um, if she was to which she does because she's right under my feet when I'm cooking and yeah, everything that drops gets licked off the floor. So, so if we did, if the, if an animal were to get too much, if they were to get exposed, would you mentioned burning their mouths? Would we see what kind of symptoms might we see to know? And I assume we flush with what, like what do we do? Yeah. Well, you know, most of the time with most household cleaners, unless they get like an undiluted, like if they're, if they're getting into something that's concentrated, that's really what's going to be damaging. If, it, if it's been diluted properly and again, it's like, it's going to be a small amount. It's probably not going to cause too much harm. Um, but that being said, most of the time, if most cleaning product toxicities are the cost, the causticness, the caustic nature of it is, is that it just, it burns the, the lining of the mouth and the throat. And so usually what you'll see, I mean, it's, and it's usually pretty quick. So okay. you'll start to see salivation, you know, licking, um, usually a ton of just salivation. Um, they'll, you know, they may be, uh, they may vomit. Um, it will be pretty it's good, quick. right? We would want them to do that, right? We want them to get it out, right? So if they vomit, if they're spitting, that's good, right? Because they're basically, their body's flushing it out. Yeah, well, it's on—it's not not something they can control. Um, but the uh, uh, but the residual, you know, effect will last more beyond just even with just washing it out. I mean, yes, that's going to be helpful to get it washed out, I guess, to, so to speak. But the the caustic effect, the burn that it causes, is going to last beyond even getting it, you know, even decontaminating them. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not a common toxicity, honestly. Okay. Um, household cleaner toxicities is a pretty unusual one when, you, when it comes to the things that we see in veterinary practice on a day-to-day -day basis. Great, um, okay. Frankly, I the most common toxicity we see right now is cannabis, cannabinoids. And oh, edibles. okay. That is utterly common now. So the, the dog goes up, because I don't think my sweet cat here wouldn't eat cannabis because she 
where would she find it? Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, where would my cat find cannabis? Um, but if what happens is it, is it usually dogs? What what is what do you see? Because that's yeah, a, it's, it's mostly dog, it's usually dog. I mean, it's possible. It's possible for a cat. I mean, I could you know occasionally you have a cat that eats like a dog and will eat anything, but you know, it's mostly dogs and. You know they'll they um, they come in and they are stoned. <laughs> I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh because they're probably danger, right? They, you know, the the good thing about it is that the it's it's very rarely do they eat enough to be lethal. Um, for the yeah. most part, they do okay, but people are freaked out because they don't know what's going on. I mean, the, typically a dog will come in, they can hardly stand up, they can hardly stay awake. They're peeing everywhere. They just lose control of their ability to hold their urine. Um, Basic frat party, okay. They're just, you know, completely, completely stoned out of their minds. And, um, you know, there's some therapies you can do to help them get through it, or you just let them sleep it off. Okay, so all of you stoners out there, put your crap away. Don't leave yes. edibles down before you... Up, Use it, up, put it put away. Up. Yeah, put it up. Then enjoy yourself, but know that your dogs can't get this stuff because yep. they will. They'll eat the cookie on the counter because they're not stupid. Yeah, and some of the edibles are becoming more and more concentrated, you know? So, uh, you know, the potential for more serious side effects are there, um, you know, as the dose increases. So is your Frenchie coming in? Oh, yes. he's, we can see a live animal. That would be awesome. Okay, so tell me about animals. So now we're all inside, and some of us are more stressed than others, but can animals pick up on this change that's happened in our behavior change? And oh, absolutely. I mean, animals are, animals are empathic, right? I mean, they completely take cues from their owners uh, all the time. You know, they're, they're utterly social, and you know, where they're pack and we're the leader of the pack, hopefully. Um, okay. Oh, okay. So yeah, they're going to take cues. I mean, if you're, you know, it, it doesn't really matter even whether it's now in the, this COVID pandemic and you're trapped inside or whether it's just day-to-day -day life. But, you know, if you're happy, they know that. And if you're sad or depressed, they know that too. And if they're, if you're angry, they definitely know that. So um, yeah, it's definitely, uh, it definitely is something that will have an effect on them positively or negatively. Is there a way to know if your animal's feeling stress? Yeah, it depends. I mean, it's, you know, I would say in general, animals will, they, they kind of behave two ways. One is they'll act, they'll do, they'll have behaviors that don't make a lot of sense. They'll have sort of, you know, displacement activities. So if they're nervous, some dogs will, you know, chew or get, you know, they'll chew on things. They'll, they'll, They'll act anxious. Um, some will withdraw and get depressed and sort of withdraw from, from interaction. So it can kind of depend. Um, but if we're seeing a behavior change, so cl clearly we've changed our behaviors, or a lot of us have. Yeah. We're home more, we're cooking. They must think that's awesome. But yeah. we're doing stuff at home. But if we notice something with our animal that doesn't seem right, then it's there's a chance potentially that there's some stress going on there or there's yeah it could be it could be or there's something going on more organically with them you know they're they're actually ill they're they're developing something that's more of an illness as opposed to just a reaction to you know you feeling a little stressed okay i would say i would say if you see something that's more extreme i would be more concerned that there's something especially if it's more extreme in terms of withdrawal 
like the animal's more depressed. They're, they're not eating as much. They're, you know, something that they really seem off. That would be, that would more likely go along with something physically wrong with them. Okay. Um, you know, if you had a dog that was like, especially like a high strung dog that was acting more high strung as a result of, you know, maybe environmental changes with owners staying home and people being stressed, that would be behavioral. That's more, much more obviously behavioral. But anytime you see an animal withdrawing, um, my first go-to would be there maybe is something physically wrong with them. So it's like listless, like you might think of a kid with a fever or something, listless, not listless, interested. not eating, uh, you know, be acting, you know, again, sort of withdrawn, depressed. Um, I would think there may be something physically wrong more than behavioral at that point. So what, so in my case, I have not been with my brood. Um, I think everybody knows I have four cats at home. I haven't been with them in a whole month and I'm going to probably stay with my daughter for, for at least for a while because she lives alone and she wants company. Uh -huh. So what happens when you're separated from your pet like that? We get to see the great reunion videos on TV, on, on YouTube all the time when a military person comes home, but otherwise the home's intact. In this case, it's my roommate caring for my cats. Is there, how do animals and experience? And, and the roommate is, the, your cats are used to your roommate. Yeah. And they get yes. on with her or him. They do, yeah, they get on with her fine, yeah. yeah. So, you know, in that particular case, that's a pretty soft transition for them to make. I mean, you know, there's still somebody that they're used to. There's still a caregiver in the house that they're used to. There's, you know, they're in the same location. Same they're location, in the home. Right. You know, they're not. I mean, I would say that that's, you know, they, they I'm not saying that they won't miss you. Um, but, you know, but for the most part, they're probably going to do okay. I think where where it becomes a much more stressful situation would be if, um, like, let's say a solo animal is in a home and now their primary caregiver is gone and maybe a, a, a neighbor's coming in and feeding them once or twice a day. Uh, and they're having, otherwise they're completely isolated. That would be challenging, I, I would imagine. That's gonna have an effect, more likely. Or if the animal is suddenly in a new home with a new, new person take, taking care of them um, for some period of time, then you're, you're gonna have some animals react in a way that's, that they're gonna act depressed, they may stop eating, um, you know, it, they may, that would have a, probably an emotional effect or a psychological effect on them. That kind of, not only a shift of caregivers, but a shift of environment. So Tom, that leads to the next question, which is so God awful, but of course people are dying yeah. and leaving their pets and how do pets, what does grief look like in a pet or what, what would we expect? Cause in that case, of course, I hope a family member or a close friend takes over the pet, but what might they expect in terms of grief in an animal? I mean, that's a good question. And it, it, it's funny. It's, you know, it's really interesting how unlike, just like people, animals can, you know, can adapt to things like that in so many different ways. Um, you know, most of the time what you're going to see is a, you know, they just get quiet. Mm -hmm. They get quieter. They maybe aren't as active. They, again, it may, their appetite may be affected. Um, they, I mean, they mourn just as much as people do. And, and that can be a mourning for the loss of a companion, like a, right. you know, uh, another animal in the house that dies, um, or, you know, a, a caregiver. So, um, but, you know, most animals are resilient. They find their they find their inner resilience once they once they kind of go through it, and they'll usually do okay as long as they're in a you know as long as they are in another loving home that they can bond you know with their new caregiver. 
And I expect I would suspect that new home gives them the space to take the time to make that adaptation. Yeah. As they get used to new people, yeah. new rules, new everything. Yeah. And you know, there's some animals, some dogs in particular that are just like, whatever, you know, <laughs> new home. Oh my God, I'm psyched. Just love everyone, you know, and <laughs> and you know, they're not gonna be affected at all. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God, awesome dogs, yes. Dogs, yeah, I, yeah. Yeah, cats are so quiet and so passive aggressive. I, um, you know, when they're mad, they just decide to bite you all of a sudden, so. No, we had this one French bulldog who, I mean, literally we'd take him out for a walk and uh, somebody would have their car door open, he would jump in their car. <laughs> like, I'm ready to go with you, take me away, I don't care, you know, it's like, he would have been fine. <laughs> so. Party dog. So, okay, you've worked with shelters. Is this a good time to adopt a pet? It's always a good time to adopt a pet. <laughs> Aw, what a good answer. No, I mean, this is a perfect time to adopt a pet. If you're home, you know, I mean, one of the big challenges of adopting a pet is that when people have their normal work lives, you know, how do you figure out, one, you know, there's the transition of them having to be on their own for extended periods of time, especially a dog. Um, and, you know, this would be a great time to bond with the new animal, you know? So, yeah, I would definitely encourage, if somebody's thinking about getting a, a new pet, this would be a perfect time to do it. If the sh I'm assuming, that's a good question. I don't know if shelters are still open. I don't know if they are, but I suspect if there was a will, there was a way, and maybe there's a yeah. way that they're doing it through the fosters or something. Maybe the foster programs are doing it. Well, or they, you know, a lot of a lot of animal adoptions now take place literally online. Like people look for animals online, and a lot of the shelter programs will have, you know, pretty robust, you know, um, information about the animal. Um, to allow you to screen, like this seems like a good match. I mean, there's always it's always important to meet them one on one. So you That's know, I, know. I have so, to get our uh, our online kitty. Oh, this is Katie's online kitty, Prentice, <laughs> named after the Prentice on Criminal Minds. But she's been she's nine years old, and Katie found her online first. It's, yeah, and she's yeah. been amazing. Yeah, she was raised with a dog, so she thinks she's a dog. But oh yeah, I love cats that like. Think they're dogs oh yeah she'll she'll come get me she's yeah now she's so you know so they they um yeah so i would th say you know if you if you can access a, a an adoption center that is still able to do physical adoptions then i you know it would be perfect time to do it fantastic okay that's such a good answer i was hoping that was the answer and then the last thing that i'm curious about and then we might have some questions from people on the phone but is there any basic health care we should be keeping in mind right now for our animals uh, yeah. while we're probably, you know, just going to the vet's a lot harder. Are there some things we could be doing at home to help take, make sure our animals are in good shape? Well, you know, there's a couple things. One is that, you know, veterinary, veterinary hospitals are considered essential, just like good. the gun stores. Um, <laughs> so, you know, so the, most veterinary practices are still open. They're still offering services. Um, you know, most practices have uh, transitioned to doing curbside service, which basically means that they're trying to limit the number of clients or limit clients coming into the hospital at all. Um, they oftentimes will do phone screens first with the client to get histories. Client comes in, drops animal off, animals taken into the practice, gets care, and then, you know, and it's all done that way now in a lot of practices. Oh, that's um, good. Okay, good to know. You know, so, you know, so if you have, I mean, for the most part, you know, even if your animal's due for vaccinations, most practices are still offering that service because they're important and you don't want to get, have them lapse and get behind on them. So, you know, if, so my recommendation would be, uh, you know, if you're, if there's a problem or if your animal has even some routine needs, 
you know, you should definitely reach out to your, your veterinary practice that you go to and, and most of them are going to be able to try to provide you service um, even now. Um, a lot of practices are trying to move to doing some telemedicine kind of like this yeah. um, because there are certain, there are certain cases that could definitely be dealt with this way without the need for an in-person physical exam of the animal. Potentially like stoned dogs. Like stoned dogs, yeah. <laughs> because that's a visual diagnosis. You know? <laughs> just, I see on your coffee table what might be the problem. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, most people deny that there's ever anything that they could have gotten exposed. Oh, it must be something they ate in the park. Oh, yeah, that's it. Because people are always leaving their weed in the park. Um, if you are, so the, the other interesting thing is, is that even though it's not been totally determined the incidents, but there have been a handful of confirmed cases of dogs and cats, well, a dog or two dogs and a cat that have been confirmed to have become infected with COVID-19 from their owners. So, I mean, coronaviruses are pretty ubiquitous and, and they, you know, there's lots of coronaviruses and dogs and cats get, get infected with coronaviruses in general as a viral class. But there have been confirmed cases in two dogs in Asia and one, one cat in Europe that were confirmed to, to test positive for COVID. So what that means is, is that um, animals aren't the source or aren't the carriers of this. They're, they're going to get infected from their owners. But if you happen to be diagnosed with COVID, you should be isolating yourself, not only from your family, but your animals. Oh, wow. So, wow. So I, I had heard about COVID potentially traveling on animal coats somehow their fur or whatever, you could have coughed on it and the next person that pets your animal. I kind of figured you got to work pretty hard to do that, but okay. But yeah. you're saying if I'm actually sick, keep the pets out of the room because you don't want to give it to your animals. Okay. Yeah. Again, you're saying it's been an exception right now, but the point is just to be careful. There's no yeah. reason to have that animal with you when you're sick. And from what I understand, you don't want your animals with you when you're sick anyway. It sounds like it's pretty miserable. Yeah, no, it's true. And it's, and it's, I mean, there's not a lot of, you know, most of our routine respiratory, you know, flus and colds and things like that. Usually those viruses are not transmissible to, to animals and the, and the colds and upper respiratory infections that animals get are not transmissible to people. That's generally the rule. So usually it's not that big of a deal, but in this particular case, particularly because again, if an animal in the house was to become infected from their owner, then they could then transmit that back to another person. So, you know, that's the idea, right? I mean, it's not that any, even these animals were even sick. It's just that they become a potential source of spreading to people. Um, get the title as a vector, a threat yeah. vector, great. So, so, you know, so it wouldn't, it's not a huge thing, but I, that, that may be, that's news that, you know, maybe is not well known and, um, you know, it's important to know. I mean, again, if you were diagnosed with COVID, if you actually are testing positive for it, you know, you just want to make sure that you're, you're not also, you know, keeping away from your pets, which I know is hard because the last thing you want to do is, <coughs> is not, you know, snuggle up with your cute. Yeah. Baby. Your fur baby can't be with yeah. you. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to open the lines. If anybody wants to ask a question of Tom, um, now is a good time. You can just unmute yourself and come on in. With the, sometimes this works and sometimes this doesn't. <laughs> you taught me things I didn't know. And I really was interested in how the, the veterinary practice has changed and how this is affecting veterinary medicine. 
I the, the telemedicine piece is the big piece. I think that there it's been a it's been a it's been a sort of a niche trend in some practices um, prior to this. There's definitely a utility for it, but this is really like fast forwarding the implementation and adoption of that kind of interface with clients in a way that like nothing else would have ever. Veterinarians are very resistant to doing anything new. <laughs> um, they are just so change resistant in general. Um, and so, you know, this is kind of forcing everyone's hand. That's right. You have to, you have to innovate in this kind of a situation um, to be able to, you know, do your job. Right. Well, uh, today was really great, Tom. I thank you so much for coming. We have a guest, uh, or tomorrow, I'm trying to put together a super fun April Fool's show. I am not sure it's going to go the way I wanted, but I'm going to make sure I have something delightful and maybe uh, something to make us laugh tomorrow with no current events, because screw that. And, um, and I think the biggest lesson we learned today is that you should not let your pets bogart your weed. That is, that's what I kind of like. That that's is true. Fun. And not to go back to the, uh, the 1980s and life in the dorms, but oh my God. Thank you so much, Tom. Thank you listeners for being on the line. And I look forward to seeing you guys tomorrow on the Life Coach Pod Show. Bye. Bye everybody.